When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings, music nerds. Welcome back. Welcome to the ongoing season three of the podcast. Hope things are going well for you out in your world. Hey, thanks for keeping in touch with me from out there. It's great to hear from people, from old and new listeners, and getting some feedback and ideas and ideas about guests and all kinds of comments and whatnot. Keep that up. It's great to hear from you. All the episodes of this podcast are brought to you from the Hen House Studio, which is my place here in Nashville, Tennessee. And this podcast is my way of bringing experiences and stories to you from people with stories to tell. It's a labor of love, and I do enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Now, on to this month's episode. My conversation with David Lindley went on a good, solid length, and thusly I have split it up into two halves. Today you will hear part one, and one week from today, that is next Wednesday morning, you will hear part two. If you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, it will be magically delivered to your podcast inbox one week from today. So make sure you subscribe and you will get that sent to you. David Lindley is one of the bucket list guys for me on this show. He's had his mitts on so many great albums and he's always been one of my favorite guitarists and has always been a musically adventurous soul, searching for new outlets and sounds and especially instruments and tones. He's embraced a fully do-it-yourself attitude to touring and recording and has basically stuck his middle finger up all the way to the way the, the music industry currently works making albums on his own, only selling them at shows, not putting them online, not streaming them, and just generally being a, a cool dude all around. 
I've had the good fortune of opening for Dave a few times over the years and seen him play many more times than that. And he's always amazing. He was also a, a big inspiration for me getting into playing lap steel and Weisenborn about 20 years ago. And so I thank him for that. And I need to shout out a big shout out to my good pal, Marcus Vickert, who lives in Toronto. But um, I was good pals with Marcus many years ago in Vancouver. We both lived there and he's the one that got me into David Lindley in the first place. Marcus used to work at a guitar shop in Vancouver that I frequented. And actually, I went there a lot. Uh, it was called Not Just Another Music Shop, and it moved around a bit, but there was one spot when it was downtown that I used to go into all the time. And Marcus worked there. He was like a tech there and, a, and sort of worked behind the desk. And we realized that we were kindred spirits, and he shared all these bootleg tapes with me of Dave, David Lindley and Ry Cooter that he had from obscure shows in the 70s through the 90s. And... Um, one of them actually is a is a really rare version of John Hyatt's Bring the Family album that was originally rejected by the label. I don't know what label it was, but basically it's the same album that we all know of John Hyatt, Bring the Family, but with David Lindley and his El Rayo crew playing on the record instead of the people that play on the version that got released, which is Ry Cooter, Nick Lowe, and Jim Keltner. So this was a different version of all the same songs that are on the on the record. And he also got me in touch with David, because they're pals still, and so David and I were able to connect, and so thanks to Marcus. And luckily for me, Lindley's another one of those guys that doesn't do a ton of interviews, and the ones that are out there t tend to be missing out on all the good stuff, so hopefully we can rectify that here this week. If you're not familiar with David Lindley's music, I think you should probably go and do a little research first. But here's the condensed Coles Notes version. He, Lindley came up in the, in the 60s in California, and he was a little whiz on the banjo and fiddle and won, won all kinds of, of fiddle contests and banjo contests as a kid. He learned a ton of crazy instruments that no one else was playing, stuck pickups on them, and rocked out in his band called Kaleidoscope that's, I think, criminally underappreciated. Uh, eventually, after that band, he hooked up with Terry Reed, who was almost the singer in Led Zeppelin. And if you listen to Terry Reed, you'll, he actually sounds quite a bit like Robert Plant, like an awesome, soulful, bluesy voice. And uh, Lindley played in his band in the UK and made some records with him. Then from there, he went back to LA and um, hooked up with a fledgling songwriter there named Jackson Brown, who many people will know, of course. And he played on all of Jackson's early recordings, including the huge hits like Running on Empty, which display Lindley's blistering lap steel slide guitar work front and center. He started playing on a bunch of sessions in the whole 70s California scene, including huge records with Linda Ronstadt, who is also his cousin, weirdly. And he eventually turned his back on a successful session career, and instead he preferred to play and tour with his new groundbreaking band called El Rayo X. And that band made all kinds of great records, and if you don't know those, you got to go check them out. There's, I, don't, I don't even know offhand how many, five or six, and they are killer. They're so cool. And then in the 90s, he reinvented himself as a more acoustic player, making these incredible albums with percussionist Hanny Nasser and Wally Ingram. Those are harder to find. I don't think you can stream them. They're kind of not even around on YouTube and stuff. Uh, but um, I, I always just bought them at shows, and they're, now they're hard to find. Uh, I th and I think you can order them on his website. But they were hugely influential to me, learning the wise and born and just getting into all this crazy repertoire that he was digging into. So those are called Playing Real Good, and then there's another one called Playing Even Better. 
And then the one with Wally Ingram is called Twango Bango Deluxe, and that was also a big record for me. Go check them all out. Uh, go to davidlinley.com to get info on his recordings, some, uh, many of which are only available there. And uh, you'll get some info on his tour dates there as well. He hasn't been touring much lately, but it looks like he's starting to pick up again a little bit, and we talk about that. And my conversation with David Lindley is coming up in just a minute. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, You can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, Also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. Hi, how are you doing, Steve? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Oh, good. I'm down here in the rain. It's probably good when that happens around there, isn't it? Yeah, well, sometimes it is. Yeah, it, it, everything grows and then everything burns, you know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty much. Honestly, like with you, I, I'm not 100% sure where to start because there's so many facets to your career that, that, I, that I'm a fan of and that I'd love to hear about. But maybe we could start by talking about yourself as a player and some of your background. Um, like I know that you were kind of a young champ on the bluegrass festival scene in the early days on banjo and fiddle, but, and I've seen you play fiddle, but I've never seen you play banjo. And somehow I can't really imagine you playing like traditional scratch oh. style banjo. Maybe you could talk about that, you know, your first instruments and what, what kind of music you were playing. Yeah, it was my first instrument. Um, well, it goes all the way back to when I was four, you know, and I, I had a violin and, and a piano and had access to a piano. And I used to, you know, bang on that. And, and uh, you know, and then I got I got a hold of my dad's uh, ukulele yeah. and, and uh, started playing that. And he, he said, uh, you know, well, we'll get, we'll get you a, a baritone ukulele. So I got a baritone ukulele, and then, then from then on, it was you know one thing after another that had strings. So it was pretty good. You know, I, I the banjo was. Uh, um, I've been listening a lot to the Kingston Trio, and there was a guy uh, at the high school where I went who was really good on the five string and he he studied with uh, uh, you know a bunch of different teachers and stuff and he he got uh, Pete Seeger's uh, style down pretty well and I, I learned that and then from then on okay. I met a guy named Walt Pittman yeah who, who was the guy who invented the uh, Scruggs tuners oh yeah, he was he was a friend of Earl, and he would he would Earl would send him, um, you know, tapes and, and yeah. stuff, and he would he would learn all, all these things, and and I I met him down at Bernardo's guitar shop in East LA, and uh, it, this guy this kind of Santa Claus guy came in with a, <laughs> a 
a brown banjo case with a pink lining and it had a Gibson master tone in there. And he says, are you sure you want to look at this? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Break it out. You know? So, and that, and that was it. It was a, one of those defining moments. And, and I, I picked that thing up and I, I saw all these things and, and that's when it started out. And I, my kind of, I listened to everybody. Yeah, I had, I had, yeah, I had access to records and and. Um, what was your access start. to those? Like, were your parents really into music? Uh, it was Barry and Grassmuck music. Uh, they they were a big music store in Pasadena, okay. and I used to work there teaching banjo and fiddle and and all kinds of different things. And and, and fiddle, I, I just kind of naturally picked up. Um, I wanted to win the, the fiddle contest, so I I learned a couple of tunes and yeah. and uh, did that. So I, it worked out pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, so you were picking it up really fast, and were you, and you were going in competitions and winning them. Yeah, when you were six and seven years old. No, 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 no. no this, this was about fourteen, and okay. I, and I was from fourteen years old on, and I I had access to a guitar and. And then, uh, and then I got my own. <clears throat> my own. Uh, my uncle was uh, was Ricardo Montalban. You know the guy. That, what? Yeah, yeah. He's my uncle. That's crazy. Yeah. Your dad's brother? Uh, no, he married my dad's sister. That's crazy. Yeah, that's it. He helped me get my first guitar. Says, <laughs> you, you have a guitar? He used to play guitar and sing at Christmas. Really? And uh, yeah, he was really, really good. So he he said, "Oh, we'll we'll, we'll get you, we'll get you guitar." So they, my dad and and he got together and and uh, plotted and schemed, and then I ended up with a guitar from Bernardo's Guitar Shop in East LA. And um, and I used to go down there all the time. I'd I'd buy tenor banjos and have. Kilo put a, a neck on him, mm-hmm. you know. And it, he was like a tech down there that you were in cahoots with. Yeah, okay. yeah. He was he was really he, he was Candelario Delgado's brother, Porfirio Delgado. He was a guitar maker, um, really really good guitar maker. Jose Feliciano plays one of his guitars, wow. and he was he was a real really good guitar maker. He could make anything. So can you make a five string neck? Oh yeah. Oh, I do those all the time for Mr. Chase out in Claremont. And I said, oh, good. So there's this interconnection. That's kind of when it started. Okay. Was that, uh, yeah, the, the banjo 12-string guitar kind of thing. Well, the interest of the banjo to you was more through, like, the Pete Seeger folky kind of sound than the Earl Scruggs bluegrass? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was until I met Walt Pittman, and then I, that's when the three finger style, you know, that took over. And I went and I got a, uh, I had a, uh, a bunch of records of, of stuff of the old time, real serious old time Roscoe Holcomb yeah, and, and uh, Obrey Ramsey, Doc Boggs, Doc Boggs, and and. Uh, you know, Snuffy Jenkins and all, all these pre-bluegrass banjo players. So I, I, I learned all that stuff. And then I heard uh, Eddie Adcock, the country gentleman, yeah. 
and he was he was a, yeah he was just amazing and I I learned as much of that as I possibly could and then were you actually playing in bluegrass bands? Yeah, we had a bluegrass band. Um, we had me and Dick Hargraves and and a uh, couple of different people, and and we ended up with uh, Richard Green playing fiddle. Okay. And then it it, it progressed in di- different members of the band, and it was Richard Green. He'd play fiddle, and and uh, he, he would win the. A fiddle contest, and I, you know, and we got to be good friends. And he showed me a bunch of stuff, and and he learned from Scotty Stoneman, okay. who, who was one of the best best player. Yeah, the Stoneman family, and he was one of the best players around. So I I, I got as much of that as I possibly could, and then and I, I learned off records, and and, uh, and people would show me different things. And there was a guy named Mike McClellan. Mm-hmm. Who was a kind of local whiz, and he he could play everything. He played every instrument, and uh, and he would do shows and at this place called the Cat's Pajamas. Oh yeah, in in Arcadia. Yeah, and I I go down there and I'd hang out out there. I would talk to Mike and and uh, he showed me a bunch of things. Tony Jackson's fiddle, amazing, <laughs> Boeing style, which was the the bluegrass yeah. style that everybody is. And I, I, I learned that. He said, oh, you got to learn this. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll learn that. And uh, and then I, I just took it and ran. And uh, Were you finding that, that you were drawn more to the banjo than the fiddle, or were you just into everything? I was into everything. Okay. So you and yeah. when, when you were playing with those bands, would you swap around and like you play fiddle on one song and banjo on another? And oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. What about like flat picking guitar? Were you into that at all? Um, not really. I, I was. Um, I go see Clarence White all the time. Nice. He was with the. Yeah, he was uh, uh, the Kentucky Colonels yeah. or the Country Boys. Uh, before they were the Kentucky Colonels, they were the, the Country Boys, and that was Leroy McNeese on dobro, Billy Ray Latham on, on five string banjo, Roland White uh, played mandolin, and, and uh, uh, Clarence White played guitar, and uh, Eric White or, or Roger Bush played the bass. And I used to go see those guys all the time, and and, uh, and they were South El Monte. I, I go and see Roland White all the time here. He plays at the station in and uh, yeah. yeah, he's still, he's still doing it, man. It's incredible. All these years later. Yeah. He, he was, uh, when Clarence got hit by that woman in the, uh, the parking lot at that club where they were playing mm-hmm. as when Clarence died. Right. He was, he, he saw the whole thing. Oh my God. Can't imagine. Yeah. Can't. Imagine. Yeah. That was really awful. Yeah. Yeah. But, the White Brothers were were the uh, kind of bluegrass standard. Was he about your age, or is he a lot? Old? He's he's older than you, right? Yeah, you know, I I'm not too sure about that. Oh, okay. uh, I'm se- I'm 74 now. Okay, I think he's he's still probably he's a little bit younger than me. So you were seeing those guys, and and they were kind of your your peers, I guess, and and you were playing around a lot. Yeah. Um, were you yeah. were you uh, like touring with any of those bands at the time, or was it just sort of local stuff that you were mostly involved in? No, it was 
it was more or less local stuff. I was going to high school, so I, I kind of had to stick around. And and uh, during the summer, I'd I'd go play, and we'd play different places: the Troubadour and the Ashgrove and and uh, Cat's Pajamas and yeah. stuff like that. We did we did a thing every night there. Yeah. So wow. every night, the Cat's Pajamas. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it turned out, you know, it, it's, anybody could get up and play. Yeah. So, you know, they would do that. So, can you like your music over the years has involved so many influences more than just you know string band and bluegrass music? Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about like how old were you when you started hearing things like reggae and dub and blues and rock and roll that that has also been a big part of what you do? All of that stuff came later. It was bluegrass music and old time music was first. And, and um, you know, I would listen to everything. I listened to Ravi Shankar and, and Uday Shankar. And um, when I was really little, I, I was like, you know, six and seven years old when I heard Ravi Shankar or uh, Uday Shankar. Is that Ravi's brother or something? Uh, it was his uncle. Oh, okay. And Robbie started out playing with the, with the, uh, with his uncle's ensemble. And, and then from then on, he, you know, I heard the first world Pacific record and, and, uh, my dad got it and then I got it and, and, uh, I got it through the, the, uh, music store where I worked. And that was it. It was as soon as the, the, you know, the sitar and the vena, and then I said, "Oh, what's this other instrument, the vena?" Yeah. Okay, and I and I picked that up, and then I I, I listened to uh, Muhammad El Bakar and and everything, yeah. you know, oud oud music from from the Middle East, and uh, yeah, everything just went all all at once. You know? So, where were you hearing? Like, where would you have picked up? recordings that featured the oud like where where would you even find those records at that point at the music store where i worked so they actually had that kind of stuff in circulation at that point yeah and there was a guy in there uh who would order stuff and they had a whole section on that and then of course they checked out tower records and tower records had all kinds of stuff and i'd go in there and i'd just make a deposit (laughs) I wouldn't take anything out of there. I just go in there and give them my, all the money I made, <laughs> and and I and I would have records. Man, I had all kinds of records, yeah. and and, um, and I'd listen to them and try to figure out what what was going on, and and um, and then that was when the kaleidoscope started. Yeah, right. So kaleidoscope kind of came out of your 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 immersion in bluegrass and and like when i hear the early kaleidoscope stuff which is you know some of it's sort of available in various forms it's hard to know what's official and what was what were bootlegs or whatever like i don't know what you intended to come out but you can you can hear a lot of it now but you were like i can hear your playing in there like on the oud and and uh and guitar and stuff and like recognize you totally even at that point when and i'd imagine you were like 17 or 18 at that point um yeah just yeah about so can you tell me a bit about how forming that band and what what you were trying to do with it and like it definitely was a was a rock band at the heart but but you were playing all this cool crazy world music too and so maybe tell me a bit about that yeah i had um i could 
check out different kinds of guitars and, and uh, amplifiers and stuff at the, this music store, Barry and Grassmick. Yeah. And, uh, and I, Standell, uh, was, was really, really good. I, I, I checked out those things, yeah, those the cool. early Standells. And, and, uh, I got to know Frank Garlock who worked down there and, and he, uh, turned me on to all kinds of amps and Standell tube amps, the old ones that were made in the, in the garage and, in, yeah. in, uh, in El Mati. Yeah. A lot of the steel players were using those, right? Like the Western swing guys. That yeah, that was the best steel amp there was. The uh, single fifteen, and then you, you have the uh, preamp in the top of the amp, and then in the bottom of the amp on 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 rubber kind of uh, insulation, you'd have the the amp section okay. of the amp, and those those things were the best pedal steel amp in the world. Yeah. So I noticed, like, there's some, even some footage of you guys playing. And you're playing like, I, I, I think there's a song where you're playing a bazooki and I can see that you've got in there and like, there's a volume knob on the bazooki. Uh, so you were probably doing that yourself, right? Like, were you taking like Diarmin pickups and stuff and sticking them into those instruments? Oh yeah, we did everything. <laughs> yeah, we put, you know, the, the first piezo uh, electric pickups were um, Barkus and Barry. And when Barkus and Barry was a... Uh, um, like a hi-fi store. Oh. They had hi-fi stuff in really? there. Yeah. H-I, yeah. H-I-dash-F-I. Yeah. And they, ha- they had that stuff in there. And, and uh, Len Barkas was in the back. He was, he was messing around with, with all these different kinds of pickups. And, mm-hmm. and Frank Garlock turned us on to, to uh, Len Barkas and he would put pickups in instruments we would take things down to him and he would put pickups in them mm-hmm. and so, Oh, this is good. Oh, you, you know, you ought to have one of these pickups, you know, that you could stick on any instrument, right. You know, you, you know, and then they, then they did that and they put this, uh, and they came out with the first, uh, guitar pickup. I still have it. It's, it's in, uh, Gibson guitar case someplace mm-hmm. and uh, it's like number two right. and it's just two pieces of aluminum with with a element in between it and they're glued together and and then you you bolt it down to an instrument and it and it plays you know and then from then on it was that that whole piezo uh, kind of pickup thing that you could you could put on anything. So that, that was a, that was a real liberating thing for us. You know, you could put it on the oud or the bazooki or the saws and and it worked out real well. So, so were you guys trying to elevate those instruments into like a rock band setting or was it just, yeah. So you were, so you, so you were playing them loud. Yeah. I had my, my, uh, Gretsch solid body and I had a, uh, um, Gibson uh, fretless wonder uh, Les Paul custom w- with three pickups, and and uh, and then we play oud and saws and and bazooki, you know, in with that stuff, and and with drums and and electric fiddle or harmonica and and, and all that, and and it worked out really well. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. And we played in San Francisco and, and Los Angeles and played all over the place. The Newport Folk Festival in 67, I think it was. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and it, just, it just went on from there, you know. Were you touring and stuff with that band? Well, most of the... Uh, we just kind of center in New York around the Albert Hotel, which was the 10th and University. And, and we had, a, and we'd go, we'd go and play up in Boston yeah. and then, you know, in different places and stuff. And mainly it was in New York. And, and that was, uh, wow. It was, it was a long time. It just, you know, yeah. we kind of lived there. 10th and University at the Albert and what we'd rehearse in the basement and the lady who ran it was really wonderful. Okay. She let us rehearse yeah. and, and, and so, and we kept going and, and, uh, and got bigger gigs and, and stuff like that. And then, and then, um, and then we stopped kind of, and then, uh, you know, different members of the band changed around and, and got into a, a whole different thing, and then I, I said, "Oh well, I th- I'm going to go do this. I'm going to play with uh, Linda Ronstadt and uh, okay. Terry Terry Reed. Yeah, Terry, yeah. yeah, ter- yeah. I, I went to England and, and played with Terry. Yeah, can you tell me about what made you move to England after Kaleidoscope? That's that's sort of. Yeah, a- I, I heard Terry at the Sky River Rock Festival uh-huh. up up in Seattle, and I, I said, "Oh boy, this guy's good." Yeah. This guy is really good, and the guy and uh, Chesley Milliken was his manager. Okay. And Chesley, but we knew him from from Magic Mushroom, which was a club on Ventura Boulevard. He opened up, yeah. and it it was where the Almond Brothers, uh, when they were the Hourglass, yeah. they they uh, that's where they were. Rehearse oh, okay. and and then they they played there all the time and, and it was Chesley was a big he was a big uh, center of everything mm-hmm. you know it, it everything he touched kind of turned to gold so we we had him <clears throat> managed the kaleidoscope for a while and, and then he went to England and managed Terry Reed and I gave him a call about the time the kaleidoscope broke up and I, I said yeah I I. I I'd like to play with Terry. Okay. You know, and he said, Oh yeah, that's good. That's what he said. Okay. <laughs> really? Okay. And, and, yeah. And yeah. 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 I got the gig and, and, um, and we went on from there and, uh, we got, uh, Bruce Rollins from the grease band and, yeah. and, uh, Chrissy, Chrissy Stewart from the pretty things. 
in uh and we played four there's four of us there's me and terry and and uh bruce and chris stewart and that that was a great band boy that was that really smoking is is there a record uh you know of that particular band i don't know if if that exists or not i i I haven't seen terry in a while and i would like to see if if recordings of that band exist i don't think they do uh, the next band was was with Lee Miles and uh, Alan White, who is uh, oh yes, he played drums with Yes oh, right, okay. uh, after us, you know. And but that band that was the that was the, really the best band. And uh, Lee Miles played with Ike and Tina Turner, and and uh, Alan was just fabulous. He he was great. Yeah. He and I. Yeah, we we got into all kinds of trouble, boy. <laughs> he, oh man, that's like <laughs> uh, like what 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 kind of trouble? Oh, it's bad stuff. You know, we went, went to Amsterdam, took acid <laughs> on the Queen's birthday, and it was carnival. Oh my god! You know, you know what? I've been to I've been to Amsterdam on the Queen's birthday. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's uh unbelievable and we we had a hotel we were playing a uh, a gig there uh in amsterdam and and we went early so you know it had a couple of days to kill so we got into all kinds of trouble me and alan we went to this indonesian restaurant took acid okay we're in an indonesian restaurant and on acid and he decides to sample uh, the condiment tray <laughs> with all this hot stuff from Indonesia, and he he got he, he got I've, I've eaten the hottest thing in the world, and he went into the bathroom and he got sick, and it, it was this awful thing. I'm okay now, <laughs> and he came out, and we went out, and the first thing we saw was a neon sign shop. Uh-huh. That was the first thing we saw when we walked out the door, right next door to the Indonesian restaurant was a neon sign shop. Uh-huh. And I said, this is going to be good. <laughs> so then we walked off into the night and we found the bumper cars. Oh my God. So here we are. Yeah. The, the bumper cars with a lot of juice flowing through there. <laughs> and, and he, Alan almost got killed. He, he stepped off that thing onto the floor. They turned it off and, and, and then we, it was it was downhill from there because we went to the Paradiso Club. I know it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. we went there upstairs and watched these guys play go and chess <laughs> and all uh, on acid. There, yeah, it was unbelievable. And it, it was, you know, he was a real bad influence on me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was still that was still with Terry Reed, where you guys were both in his band. Oh yeah, okay. oh yeah, we were on Terry's band, and 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 we played the Paradiso then. Yeah. Uh, after the, that two days of of being insane, then we uh, we played the Paradiso, and we played uh, places in Germany and Austria and Switzerland. So with Terry, it was really with good. Terry Reed, what um, like were you playing guitar with him at that point, like slide guitar and stuff? Or yeah. Okay. Yeah, slide guitar. That was the first slide guitar stuff. So tell me a bit about how you got into slide and like what you were into at the time. And you know, that's such a big part of what you do yeah. now. Like maybe you could talk a bit about about that. Yeah, that that was a um, 
electric slide guitar I, I saw uh, when I was with the Kaleidoscope. This is towards the end of it. Uh, I saw Freddie Roulette play. Oh, yeah. And I saw him play, and I went, oh, holy shit. <laughs> this is really good. This is really good stuff. And he was, you know, you know, Freddie Roulette. You know how he plays. Yeah, he's he plays all that El, Elvino Ray totally. stuff. And then he plays all, all this other stuff, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. I want to do this. And I talked to him, and, and and he said, this is what you get. You know, eight strings, that's a little much. You get a six string, and, and then you, you uh, a national. You get a national, and and you, you know, and he showed me some things, some different techniques and things. And I, and I said, okay, I, I got it. Oh, you got it. I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I got it. So I, I went and I, I bought this national uh, electric slide guitar down in uh, down Hollywood. I took it home and I, I shut everybody out. And that's what I did. Long time. And then I, I took it I took it to England and started playing with Terry Reed and... and uh, and that's that's more or less when it started at the end of the kaleidoscope, the beginning of Terry Reed is when the when the uh, um, slide guitar started, and and then from then on, and uh, Chesley was also friends with Jackson Brown. Yeah. So I I met Jackson through Chesley Milliken, uh, who was Terry Reed's manager, and he was also he was connected with the Grateful Dead and with, oh, okay. later on. Yeah. with him and then he was um he was connected with everybody so so when you say you were into getting into slide guitar through um through freddie roulette and he was showing you stuff like you're talking about lap steel here you're not you're not you're not playing bottleneck at this point you're playing lap steel. oh no i, I have never played bottleneck okay. i can't play a bottleneck you got you got your right cooter you know that's yeah. all you need yeah. <laughs> that's all you need is right cooter on the bottleneck guitar and that was it and and so I, I one of the things about Freddie Roulette that was amazing is that he would play it like a lap steel guitar and I went okay right, this is good yeah. this is a this is kind of a different thing but I can do this right right and, and so, and so I, I picked up the six string and, and took it and played it with Terry and and then I played it with Jackson Brown. And then if you were listening to records and like, you must've been learning stuff at some point after Freddie Roulette had sort of put his, put his mix oh, into yeah. you. What, like what were some of the records that you were learning from that were a big influence for you on the steel, on the lap steel? Uh, yeah. Uh, Earl Hooker. Yeah. Earl Hooker. He had a, in fact, Freddie played in this band and he, he was really good. And he, I, got turned on to a whole kind of different world of, of this Chicago kind of, um, slide guitar and, and, and different things and, you know, sacred steel. And, and I, I checked this stuff out and I said, this is really good. You could, you can do all kinds of things. And then I, I would, depending on what Jackson would need in his, in his songs and all that stuff, I, I said, Oh, I got something for that. <laughs> oh, I got something for that. I'll let me play this. And then he said, yeah, that's good. Okay. And then, and then we would do that yeah. for a while, you know, for seven years we did that. 
Um, so then, t- tell me a bit about your, your stint with Jackson Brown. Cause so you came back from England with Terry Reed, you got a gig with yeah. Jackson Brown. He was just a, like a kid starting out at that point, right? Like you were playing with yeah. him from the beginning, right? Yeah. Right from the beginning. I, I played a gig with him at the Troubadour and, and, uh, I played with him at, um, um, we did a gig at the magic mushroom in, in mm-hmm. Cambridge. Okay. Uh, yeah. Chesley started this club there, you know, the same as the, as the club on Ventura, except really small. And, uh, and then we played a gig there and I said, this really works good. I'll, I'll, I'll be back pretty soon. You know, I was left England and, and went, right, took my wife and daughter and, and, uh, who had come over. Mm-hmm. They, they were living in England. We were going to stay there, you know. Okay. That was the Vietnam War, you know. I says, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So, so um, we were going to live in England, and I said, you know, you get homesick and all that stuff. And I, I had heard Cajun music, you know, Doug Kershaw and all that stuff. And I, I said, oh, no, I want to know. We know we're going to do this. So I went back and uh, started up and got a gig with Jackson and that was it. Yeah. Cool. So how much recording, like I know Kaleidoscope was doing some recording and, and we've talked about Terry Reed, maybe not making a record, uh, with Jackson, yeah. you started making records pretty like right from the beginning of his career. How much studio experience did you have at this point? I had pretty much studio experience. Terry Reed made a, a couple of albums. One of them was called river and and we made that um towards the end of that band and and that was uh at Olympic Studios and Island Studios and I got to know Chris Blackwell what was going on there. Yeah. And and all you know, when you were in England in those days, sixty nine, seventy and seventy one, uh you, reggae was all over the place. Okay. And the and the whale Bob Marley and the Whalers, they were just starting out. So I, I heard the early stuff. I got I got a bunch of reggae records in yeah. uh, uh, Trojan label, the yeah. uh, reggae label. They had a whole bunch of records, and I got them. What were some of your favorites? Oh yeah, um, Desmond Decker and the Aces. Uh, yeah, the, that that was the first thing I heard. And then I, I heard the Pioneers and the Rudies and the Greyhounds. It was a huge thing in England at that time. It had a huge impact on you because it's been a part of your music. Oh, yeah. Ever since El Rayo X. I don't know if it was before, but, but you know, you hear it on those early El Rayo records and then it stuck with you. So it, that must have had a huge impact on you. Oh, it was giant. Yeah, I, I, I heard that and I went, oh, that's, that's, man, they sing just like bluegrass. Right. You know, these, these guys listen to all those radio stations there in Nashville and, and, uh, um, New Orleans and they, they got a lot of the techniques of, of that. And a lot of that technique was bluegrass music. And I, I you know, these three part harmonies and, and all that stuff. I said, Oh, this is good. Yeah. Let's do this for a while. So I, I put a bunch of, you know, stuff together. when I was playing with Jackson at the, uh-huh. at the time and, yeah. and he produced a record it was that first El Rio X blue record. Yeah, man. It's one of my favorites of all time. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> and that was, a, I got a bunch of uh, musicians together, you know, from from all the people that I'd met in the studio and, and all uh, 
you know, I played on all kinds of things when I got back. And Reggie McBride on the on the bass, and Ian Ian Wallace I had heard with Lonnie Mac's band. Nice. And I said, "Oh, this guy's good. This guy's rock solid." So I get him and, and get this guy, George Pierre Bonaparte, yeah. Babu, and got him. And he was on percussion, right? He was on percussion, and he w- he also played accordion, and he he wrote songs and stuff. Yeah, it was it had Babu on the timbales and timbalitos up in front, and Ian in the back, and Jorge Calderon on the bass, and uh, Bernie Larson on uh, rhythm guitar, and uh, that was it. And then we start we started that machine, and and that learned to feed itself, <laughs> and we went everywhere. If we talk specifically about that blue record. Can you tell me what the sessions were like? Like, if you actually think back to the process. Uh, oh man, they were they were really good. It was it was based around Greg Ladani, who was yeah. was a recording engineer for Jackson, and and I he said, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this album. So we did it in the studio where we do recorded Jackson stuff, uh-huh. uh, rec- record one and uh, Sunset Sound Nuts. Um, Sound Factory on Selma. There was it was um, a studio run by Val Garay, uh-huh. and he and he and Greg are really good friends, and and Val had all kinds of really good equipment, and Greg was kind of the second engineer, and he he wanted to do this project. Yeah, the Sunset Sound Factory sessions; those were um, mostly overdubs, and the the. Uh, the actual sessions. Oh, actually, we did we did them in both places. We 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 experimented around a little bit, yeah. and and uh, we got the same sounds. Okay. When you guys were making that record, was it essentially a live like a live performance? Like the band was all playing together. Yeah. All in the same room and stuff. Like how the, the interesting thing to me is like they sound like they have a it, that record in particular has a really live energy, but it also sounds yeah like, produced and like you know like kind of in in tune with a lot of other recordings that are of that era. So I'm just wondering like how yeah. you know how, were you doing a lot of overdubs and and was were the sounds pretty live and raw or were you spending a lot of time on that kind of stuff? It was it was essentially um we do the uh record the uh, the song first and I would do a pilot vocal yeah. which ended up in a lot of cases being the the main vocal on it. The key and um, you get a lot of microphone leakage, and then there were some tunes that you had to start from from scratch and record a different way, uh-huh. you know. And that and that was um, you know, and then overdub on yeah. it, you know. I, I would overdub things and solos and 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 redo a guitar or one of those things, you know. And I, I had I was experimenting with the Dan Electro guitars and uh, and the chorus and stuff from playing with Ry Cooter. Yeah, right. And I, I said, oh, this is good. This is a good sound. Thank you so much for listening to part one of my conversation with David Lindley. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and you will be notified when part two is available, which will be one week from today. That's next Wednesday. You will get part two of this episode with David Lindley. Don't miss it. Thank you. See you then.
Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.